Well, you will love, uh, if you don't know Brenda, she, uh, haven't heard her before, you'll appreciate what she has to say this morning. Brenda has been working with us as a church for the last couple of years around the issues of racial and ethnic reconciliation. She goes around the country working with churches, schools, colleges, and other organizations around these issues, and she really brings a, an aspect of the God's Spirit into the midst of this and seeing how we, helping us as a church, how we can move forward in this issue. So I want you just to welcome Brenda as she comes and shares her heart with us. Better watch out with this crowd. I know. We're going to pray together for this time that the Spirit will come. Will you stand with me? Reach across the aisles and reach across to your neighbors and just grab a hand. We're going to pray together that the Lord will speak to us. Let's all pray this prayer together in Jesus' name. Lord, Holy Spirit, we invite your presence here. We ask that you would reveal new truths to us. I pray that for the persons that we're holding hands with, Lord, I pray that you would touch them and you would move upon their hearts and you would transform their lives and you would open their hearts if there's anything that would keep them from, from really hearing your voice this morning. I pray that you would do the same for each person in this room, each individual, my heart, that you would transform me. God, I pray for our speaker, Brenda, this morning, that you would anoint her and speak through her and just release her to share her heart according to your leading and your prompting. God, I thank you for the fruit that will come out of this truth that will be shared this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Brenda, God bless you and share amen. your heart with us this morning. Thank you thank so you. much. Thanks for making room for me. <laughs> I'm glad to be back. Amen. <laughs> Amen. It's a joy to be here. It really is. I bring greetings from Chicago where my family uh, is and says hello to you. They are bummed that they can't be physically with me, but they do send their love and greetings to this church. It's one of our favorite, absolute favorite places to be. And so, amen. Just know that what you feel for me, I feel for you. And I'm very, very grateful for the chance to be back in your pulpit again. Oh, golly, there's so much on my heart to say. And so let me begin by saying this. Uh, I've only had an experience twice in my life where I've preached the same thing everywhere I've gone. Uh, about 10 years ago, God gave me a word about Kairos time. And I felt led of God to preach that every single place I went. And so for a year straight, without interruption, every place I went, I preached that message. It's happened again. God has put a word in my heart, and I could hardly wait to get here to Woodland Hills Church to share this word with you, because I believe it's a relevant word for our generation, and I believe it's a word that's a turning point word uh, regarding what God wants to do in and through us. So, with no further ado, would you please turn your attention to the screens as I read the word of God from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. This is what the word of the Lord says. And I know that this man, whether in the body or, or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. 
to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. And we're thankful. Amen? Amen. Amen. I want to preach this morning from what might sound to be a paradoxical subject. And it's simply this. The power of weakness. The power of weakness. It was December 2000, and I've never wanted to preach better in my life. I was invited to preach at Urbana 2000. For those of you who may not know, Urbana is a triennial conference convention that's sponsored by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship uh, that takes place at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana, hence the name, and delegates from all over the world come for this outstanding missions conference uh, to learn about what God is doing around the world and to be commissioned into kingdom service that reaches the entire globe. It is a huge honor to be asked to speak at Urbana. Between 18 and 20,000 people were expected to be there that year, and I was one of the keynote speakers who was asked to take the podium. I wanted to knock it out the park. I wanted to do such a great job because to be asked meant that they had huge expectations. They had heard that I was a good speaker and good enough to be standing on that platform, and I didn't want to let them down. I wanted to be hot. I wanted to be the preacher that exceeded their expectations. Man, I was supposed to preach about reconciliation. I was the second night of the conference. This was the night of repentance. And I mean, I wanted mass repentance. I wanted folks to fall prostrate before God as a result of the power of God coming in that place. Man, I wanted fire to come out my fingertips. I wanted the Lord to show up. I wanted the Lord to show up. And so I did everything I could think of to get, quote, anointed. I wanted to have the presence and the power of God heavily resting on me. And so I did all the things that I was taught to do as I grew up in a church that talked about prayer and fasting. So I fasted, man. I'm talking fasted. Fasted for an extended period of time. Uh, my husband would say, you're going to eat yet? No, no, no. I'm believing God. So I was really pressing in. I studied like I've never studied before. I studied Greek, Hebrew. I pulled out all the stops trying to get to the place that I was in the zone with God. Now, I know it's not about a feeling. Let me hasten to say that the presence of God is about faith and not a feeling, but I can tell when I'm in the zone with God. I, there's a certain sense that comes over me when I know I'm in the flow, and I never quite started feeling that. There are times that I can sense God's presence so heavily that I want to take notes on myself, like, <laughs> like God is talking up in here. I can feel him. I know he's present, and I never quite felt that sense that, that God was with me, and I began to get concerned about it. 
And so as we got closer to uh, my time to speak at Urbana, my husband and I went to a Bible study that we attend on a monthly basis. And I shared with my friends there what I was sensing, that I, I knew God had called me to preach, that I was doing everything I knew to be prepared, but I still didn't quite sense God's presence powerfully resident with me. And I wanted so much to be used by God uh, for, this, for this convention. So they sat me in a chair, and they made a circle around me, and they laid hands on me, and they prayed the kinds of prayers that folks are supposed to pray. They said things like, Lord, bless her. Lord, use her. Lord, anoint her. Oh, God, just show up and speak through her. And I nodded my head in agreement. Yes, Lord, do it, Father. Yes, amen. And I agree. And then my husband prayed. Now, my husband is a psychologist, and he's given to the truth. Uh, he seems to be completely committed to it in my life. <laughs> and so, I can still almost feel the weight of his hand as he put his hand on the center of my head, pressed down and said, Lord God, Brenda represents the best of who we are, and we give her to you, Lord, and we ask you to use her as your sacrificial lamb. <laughs> Now it gets fuzzy right after lamb <laughs> because I got mad in prayer. <laughs> I know you're not supposed to, but I remember thinking, why you say something like that? I don't want to be a sacrificial lamb. Why did you pray something like that, sacrificial lamb? What kind of prayer was that? And so now I'm mad at him because nobody else has prayed anything like that. And I'm thinking, here he goes again. And so I decided to dismiss Derek's prayer and to go with the majority. <laughs> I decided that the other people were hearing God and he was not. But little did I know that I was about to discover something about the power of weakness. So I show up at Urbana. I still don't quite feel that in-the-pocket sense with God, but it's my turn. It's my night. They introduce me. I come to the podium, and I give it all I've got. During my sermon, I told a story that's quite difficult to tell, and I'm certain I've told it here, but it's about a member, a former member of my local church. His name was Ricky Birdsong, and he was the former head basketball coach at Northwestern University, and I talked in that sermon that night about the fact that Ricky Bursong was killed by a random act of violence, a young white college student who was on a self-proclaimed, I don't know, white supremacist hate crime spree, shot Jewish people not far from where I used to live, shot Asian folks down by uh, downstate Illinois, came back to Skokie, Illinois, and shot a tall black man walking from the playground with two of his three kids. Killed him on the spot. Now, I knew that one other person had been killed that same weekend, but I didn't know how to say his name. He was a Korean young man, and I didn't know how to say his name. And because I wanted to do such a grand job in front of all these people, I made a split-second decision to omit trying to say his name. I was afraid that I would say it wrong, and I was already not feeling like I was preaching the best sermon in the whole wide world, so why take a chance and do something that you're not sure of? So I skipped it. I finished the sermon, and it didn't go badly, but it wasn't my best time out. I mean, there are some times, man, I'm telling you, there are some times that I feel like, oh, he's talking.
walking through me now, but it wasn't one of them times. So I finished preaching. I went off the stage. People said how much they appreciated it, and I thanked them, but I didn't believe them. So not long after I did all the obligatory hellos, I went to my hotel. In the lobby of my hotel, a young Latin, Latino uh, staff worker who's a friend greeted me and said, oh, Brenda, great job. And I'm, you know, yeah, right. And he said, no, really, it went great. But I overheard some Korean college students talking, and they were a little disappointed. They were a little hurt that you hadn't mentioned the name of the other uh, young man that was killed. It was almost like he kind of slighted the Korean community. And I, I just, hey, man, I defended myself. I explained to him, and I said, you know, I didn't, I didn't omit his name. I didn't forget him, but I didn't know how to say his name right, so I didn't want to say it wrong. And so, you know, I just ch chose not to. And I didn't feel badly about that explanation. I thought it was a, you know, reasonable explanation. I went to bed that night. I slept well. No guilt was on me. The next morning when I woke up, I was in the shower, and I'm telling you, my friends, God spoke to me. God spoke to me. And I heard the Lord say, I want you to be a symbol of repentance. And I said out loud, God, I don't want to be no symbol of repentance. <laughs> and I quote, my husband heard me say, I don't want to be no symbol of repentance. And so he said, who are you talking to in there? Finished, came out of the shower, and I said to my husband, Honey, I think God wants me to apologize. And he said in his very wise way, I think you might be right. Now you must know that that's the last thing in the whole wide world that I wanted to do. They say in the Bible that Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. Well, I want you to know that I became the whining prophet. I drug my heels and I whined the whole way as I went to different leaders of the Urbana Convention to ask them if I could have permission to readdress the, the convention, hoping with all my heart that they would say no. <laughs> then I would go back in prayer to God and I would tell God I tried. They said no and so there. I really didn't want to do it, and I was really hoping they'd say no, and I had reason to believe that they wouldn't say yes. Urbana has to move, maneuver 15, 16, 18, 20,000 people at a time, and they can't have people coming back up to the platform to take a second chance. They have everything timed, and you don't get to use time that wasn't already planned. So I knew that they would tell me it just wasn't possible. The first person I saw was a woman named Jeanette. Jeanette was the person who was doing announcements for the entire convention. She's also a, an Asian American staff leader, and I just kind of wanted to run it by her and see what she'd say, knowing Jeanette would say no. She said, help me, yeah. yes. <laughs> now I'm sweating. So I see another friend, his name is Alex, and Alex was the person who led prayer that year at Urbana from the platform. 
And so I see him, and I just know he's going to be on my side. He's an African-American guy, a pastor in Madison, Wisconsin. I said, Alex, man, I think God, uh, I think God is putting it on my heart to come back and, and apologize for, you know, uh, last night I didn't say it, but, you know, I can't do that, man, because, you know, we can't, we can't take more time. And he said, you know, that's, that's, that's something. I, I don't have enough stuff on my prayer agenda for this morning. You could take two minutes of my time. It would be great. And I'm thinking, oh, no. So now he says yes. My last hope is that the director of the convention, a man of great stature, a man of prayer, and a man who stays on time, he was certainly going to say no. So I go to the director of the convention, and he said, talk to me. He said yes. So much to my chagrin, I came back up on the platform. And since a picture is worth a thousand words, I thought I'd let you see for yourself what happened at Urbana 2000 that day. Here's what I said. Last night, I had the awesome privilege of being the speaker in this great assembly gathering of worship. And in my time, thank you. And in my time of being with you, I neglected to say something. It wasn't an oversight. It wasn't something I forgot. I made a decision. But in retrospect, it was a bad decision. I talked about, very candidly and very vividly, the death of my friend, Ricky Birdsong. I did mention that that weekend, Ricky wasn't the only person who was shot and killed. I said that there were nine separate incidences across Illinois and Indiana, and I said that he had targeted other people, but I didn't mention the name of the young Korean graduate student who was also shot and killed on that exact same weekend. The reason I didn't mention his name was because I was afraid. I was scared that I was going to say his name wrong, and I hadn't had a chance to check in with my friends who could have told me how to say it right. And so in fear that I was going to butcher his name in front of all of you, I decided not to say it at all. His name was Yoon Won Jun. He was a young Korean graduate student, and he was shot and killed outside of his Presbyterian church in Indiana. Very promising young man. And to my Asian American friends, and particularly those of you from the Korean community, I want you to know that I did not forget him. God knows I don't believe that this is a black and white issue alone. And forgive me, please, for making it sound that way. It's really about all of us. I um, spent my life going around the country talking about racial reconciliation and I'm really used to being the strong advocate who gets it right and people tell me how great and all that stuff. But this Urbana, my husband prayed that God would let me be his sacrificial lamb. I didn't like that prayer then and I don't like it now. <laughs> but I think I'm starting to get it because it wasn't about me saying anything great to you last night. I think God wants me to model some stuff. And so I really do ask you to forgive me 
because it was the wrong thing to do and it was a horrible oversight and it made it sound like it's not about more than black and white people. And in my heart of hearts, I really want you to know that it's bigger, much, much bigger. And I so grieve for the young, that young Korean student as much as I do for Ricky Birdsong. In closing, I just want to say one last thing. I didn't fully get what role God was asking me to do here, but for my white brothers and sisters, European Americans, for the lack of a better way to describe who I want you to know you are, I now understand and identify with you how it feels like to always have to apologize and feel like you get it wrong, even when you're trying so hard to get it right. And if that gives you any comfort at all in this process of racial reconciliation, ethnic diversity, what God is doing multi-ethnically, I want you to know I really am starting to understand. And so for those of you who feel so inclined, I do invite you to come back to Follinger Hall. I believe God wants to take some next steps in our lives, as Barney has talked about next steps. I believe God wants to raise up a reconciliation generation. And I believe that reconciliation generation is you. You'll never believe what happened as a result of that two-minute apology. It was what I couldn't have done myself. I couldn't have planned it. As I said the line, I identify with how it feels to be white, to feel like you always get it wrong when you try so hard to get it right. That just came out of nowhere. I didn't plan to say it. I wasn't even sure where it came from myself, but it, it was sincere. And when I said it, an audible gasp came out in the entire auditorium. The worship leader, a young man named Matt, was standing not far from me, and he began to weep on the platform. A woman named Allison was watching it on closed circuit TV, and when she heard those words come out of my mouth as a white woman, she said something hit her in the pit of her stomach. She doubled over and began to sob in a way that was cleansing to her soul. God showed up at Urbana not through my power, but through my weakness. I came off the stage, and a man named Ken Fong was standing at the bottom of the stairs. Ken and I were not close friends at that point. He knew me, and I knew him, but I'm telling you, he grabbed me like I was a rag doll, and he held me close to himself. And he said, I've never been more proud of you in my life. And he held me until I stopped shaking, and he loved me like a brother. It was the most amazing moment. And then as I walked back out into the convention, people from China and different places around the world, but particularly uh, Asian countries, Chinese people, Japanese people, they bowed as I came in the stands as a sign of honor to me. I didn't even know how to take it. I couldn't believe it was coming toward me. I didn't understand this, this sense of respect for me. Native Americans invited me to come to the Native American gathering that afternoon. I was the only non-Native American person there. 
African-American people were proud of me for standing on the stage and being so transparent. God began to bring reconciliation. The very thing that I'd hoped for, the very thing that I'd prayed for and prepared for and tried for but couldn't pull off myself, God did. Not because I was strong, but because I was weak. It was absolutely amazing to me. Do you know that God allowed me to go to Africa as a result of being humble? Now, I'm still trying to get the lesson, but I believe that God has a word for our generation. And I believe God is trying to challenge us to believe that what Paul said to us is right, that it's God's power, not in our strength, but in our weakness that reveals the glory of God. So here again what Paul had to say, amen, you can clap for the Lord. Praise him, praise him, hallelujah, because he's going to use us, folks, but he's not going to use us like we think he's going to use us. And I think he's sending this message in the earth to prepare us to get ready to be used. So hear what Paul says again, and I know that this man, whether in the body or, or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things ah, that no man is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Let's read further. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great, surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Let me stop and see if I can interpret Paul. Paul is basically saying, if I wanted to brag, if I wanted to be motivated by pride, I could. Because I want you to know I got pedigree on my side. I want you to know that I've got stuff that I could feel real proud about. I want you to know that there are things that distinguish me. I want you to know that God speaks to me and that I have been caught up into the heaven of heavens. I've had experiences that are supernatural that you couldn't even imagine. I couldn't even explain them to you. If they were so surpassing of any human ability to understand. I won't talk about that though. I'm not going to lead with that. I could if I wanted to. I'm a bad boy. And if I really wanted to impress you, I could. I've got degrees and I've got rabbinic training and I know who's who and what's what. I could be impressive, but I choose not to. And to keep me from becoming too elated, too conceited, too full of myself, too sure of myself, God allowed Satan to have something in my life that kept me humble. I prayed three times for God to take it away. And if the truth be told, no matter how wonderful and how shiny we all try to appear, most, if not all of us, have something in our lives that we wish the Lord would take it away. And the answer has so far been a holy no. There are things in our lives that we would change if we could. Family members that we would save if we could. Things that we would alter if we could, but we can't. And God says, trust my grace. It's sufficient. My grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient for you. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Hear that. 
I'm going to boast in my weakness. I'm going to boast in my weakness so that Christ's power may tabernacle on me. That's literally the word used there, tabernacle on me. Well, where did we hear that word before? In the Old Testament, right? The children of Israel were asked to build a tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle where God's presence would show up. In the Old Testament, when they wanted to meet with God, they would meet God at the tabernacle. And God's presence would manifest itself by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day. And they would know God's here. The Shekinah glory of God is here. Ah, we can't look at God. The brightness and the glory and the intensity of God is beyond us. But here is where we hear from God. Here is where we meet with God. Here is where we are empowered by God. Here is where we get direction from God. God says, do you want to know where I tabernacle now? Do you want to know where I rest now? Will you want to see me hovering? You want to see me resting on a congregation or on a people? Show me humble people. Show me people who are weak in front of me, people who are not prideful, and you'll see my presence hovering on them. I rest on people like that. I rest on people who are not strong in themselves, but who are weak. And when they are, I swap them. A divine swap takes place, my friends. God takes our weakness and exchanges it for his power. That's a swap. God says, I'll take what you don't have, and I'll give you what I have. And I'm here to tell you, God can accomplish more in two minutes than we could accomplish in two years. His power and his grace far surpasses anything that we're able to do. We just celebrated Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday, and I want to tell you that that was the power of the civil rights movement. It was nonviolent. Dr. King is, is championed as a civil rights preacher, a person, and he was, but I'm telling you, he was a man of faith. He was a man of God, and he believed that if he was weak, God would be strong. And so when people wanted to retaliate, he'd say, don't you fight back. Translation, don't use your own strength. And because they chose to restrain their strength, God swapped them. Ah, I feel like preaching. <laughs> God swapped them. God took their weakness and gave their strength, and the rest is history. Now I ask you, do you want to go down in history and be somebody who's used by God? Paul says, let God swap you. Now this is a hard message to sell to this generation because we don't believe this if the truth be told. We are people who are socialized to like strength. We are people who are socialized to respect power. I speak on college campuses all over the country and young people don't want to hear this. And if the truth be told, older people don't want to hear it either. The people we respect in this society are people who have some sort of power. That's how they get on our television screens, and that's how they get on the front of our newspapers and in our magazines, Newsweek, Time. Those are people who we revere, call stars and celebrities because they have some type of power, military power economic or financial power. They might not have a moral bone in their body, but they're rich. And we call them stars. 
financial power, economic power, technological power, intellectual power. We respect folks who have power, people power, charismatic power. We like folks with power. We want to be folks with power. We gravitate toward power. And Paul says God's trying to flip the script. God's trying to get us to think paradoxically. God's trying to teach us the power of weakness. I read a book by a woman named Marva Don. And Marva Don had a very interesting quote that has challenged me ever since I read it. Her book is called this, Power, Weakness, and the Tabernacling of God. Much of what I've understood about this whole notion of the Shekinah glory of God coming on the people of God came out of the reading of her book. But here's what Marva Don has to say, and I quote, God has more need of our weakness than our strength. Just as powers overstep their bounds and become God's, so our power becomes a rival to God. By our union with Christ in the power of the Spirit in our weaknesses, then we display the glory of God. We're all tempted, my brothers and sisters, to be our own little gods. We're all tempted to make idols of ourselves or of those things or people that we respect. And she's right. Our own power becomes a rival to God's. And so when I show up in my own power, basically I'm saying to God, step aside, I've got this one. And so God says, well, then do your thing. <laughs> but when we show up weak and prayerful and humble and we check our pride at the door, we're saying, God, I need you. Send your power. We want to know you in your power, in your resurrection, in your suffering. We want to know you. Send your power. The church I grew up in, they used to sing, send it on down, Lord, send it on down. Lord, let the Holy Ghost come on down. Because poor people understood they didn't have any power. And they were begging God for God's power. Healings take place when God's power shows up. Reconciliation occurs when God's power shows up. Walls come tumbling down when God's power shows up. I tried to tell some college students this one day. In fact, I took a whole summer to try to convince them of this truth. I was working on my doctorate degree and decided to bring a group of students to Chicago, Illinois to do an urban internship program for the summer. We were going to practice reconciliation together by living in the inner city and suffering together and serving together and learning together. At the beginning of the summer, I gave them a pretest to find out where they were in their attitudes and their understandings of reconciliation. They all passed the test with flying colors. Nobody used wrong language. Everybody used inclusive language. Nobody was racist. Everybody was wonderful. Everybody had taken sociology. Oh, they were just shiny people. <laughs> I didn't even know why they needed me. They were just so great. And then the summer came. And living in one apartment got hot. People's attitudes got testy and folks weren't as patient as they thought they would be and the kids weren't as nice to work with as they thought they would be and the resources in the hood were not that good and they didn't like it. They argued and they struggled and they fought. They didn't like sharing each other's stuff. They didn't like the way each other cooked. 
and they wrestled and they struggled and they survived. At the end of the summer, I gave them a post-test to see how they had grown in their understandings, hopefully as a result of the training that I had taken them through for the entire summer. The results were horrifying to me because to a person, everyone scored lower on the post-test than the pre-test. And did I mention that this was for my dissertation? <laughs> it was a bad day. I panicked. I said to my husband, oh my God, they're worse, sir. <laughs> they were better before I worked with them. Oh God, I can't prove that my training was good. I can't prove that the model I developed was any good. It's not good because they're worse after working with me than before working with me. Now, that ain't good. My husband grabbed me and said, stop it. And he sat me down at a table and uh, put both sets of tests in front of me. And he said, let the data speak for itself. So he sat me there and gave me a new methodology. And I used it. And I basically compared each test person by person, question and answer by question and answer. And I discovered something that absolutely blew my mind. I discovered that the students who came for the summer came very self-confident and arrogant. The students who left that summer program were less self-assured and they were now humble. Arrogant people had been transformed by the power of God into humble people. And if I don't know anything, I know this, that at the heart of reconciliation is humility. God will use us to tear down walls and to build bridges, but he's not going to use our power I believe God is going to use our weakness. And so Woodland Hills Church, I've come by here to say this to you. I believe that we're living in a day where the kingdom of God is going to come. I believe that we're going to see a day where God is going to unite people from every tribe and every nation. I believe it with all my heart. Just like I pointed to those young students, I point to you. I believe that we're living in a season or a generation, and I believe that we are living in the reconciliation generation. I don't believe it's by accident that we are experiencing more diversity, more globalization, more multi-ethnicity than any generation that has preceded us. I believe God is going to use us to redeem the time and to declare the kingdom of God in this earth I believe God's going to use the church hallelujah I believe God's going to use the church I believe that God's going to use the church we are God's best kept secret and God's going to deploy us in the earth but he's saying to us watch yourselves don't go out in pride go out in weakness go out don't go out in your strength go out in your humility because I will then come and I will tabernacle with you hallelujah I will now come and I'm going to rest on you. Doors will open because my presence is going to be on you. Things will happen and resources will come to advance the work, not because of your power, but because of your weakness. I will do this thing, says God, for my glory. And the old whole earth will see it. And so let me say this to you. God is flipping the script. God is turning things on its head. God is switching things. He's being paradoxical now. And so hear me when I say to you, our pride is not helping us. The things that we boast in are not moving us forward. The way up is down. Humble yourself before the sight of God under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up in due season. 
And it will be amazing what God does through a few folks who are fallible and often wrong and trying hard to get it right, who have to make apology, who try to knock it out the park and bunt instead. God will take those efforts. He'll bring his supernatural presence to it. And he will use human beings like you and me to advance the kingdom of God. And so I say to you as I close, we are living in a time of great movement of the Lord. We're living in a time of reconciliation. And the key, the key to everything God is going to do is humility. And so my prayer is that you and I would become students of the kingdom and that we would believe in the power of weakness. Would you stand to your feet? I'd love to pray. Thank you, Jesus. I want you to know God's going to do mighty things. Just as you start to bow your heads now, in your own heart, commune with God about what you've heard. But I want you to hear me say, God is going to do great and mighty things. He's going to do more than we could ask or imagine. Hallelujah. God is bringing us to the end of ourselves, to the end of our strength. We've tried it all. We've tried to throw money at it. It didn't work. We tried our education. We're just not smart enough. We've tried to defend ourselves and fight it out. We're just not strong enough. God says it's not going to come through your strength. And so what are you trusting in this morning? What's your place of power? Is it who you know and who you're connected to? Put it at the foot of the cross. It could be that you really do have resources. And you've tried your best to use your resources to make a difference. And God is saying, put it at my feet. Trust not in those things. Trust in me. You might have a powerful personality. And you've got strong opinions. And you write letters. And you take people on. And you've been trying to get this church to change by the sheer strength of your will. I don't know who I'm talking to, but I sense God is saying, cut it out. Humble is the way. Humble is the way. With every head bowed and every eye closed. Unless you're reading my lips, and that's fine to do, feel free. If you're reading my lips, feel free. But for those of you who are able not to be distracted in other ways, I want you to just say to God, Lord, I want you to use me. Lord, I want your kingdom to come in earth. I want you to use this church. Rest on us. Thank you, Jesus. I'm praying for you now. Lord God, I pray for Woodland Hills, and I pray for every person. Lord God, our hearts are right, and we're trying to do the right thing, but I sense we're doing it the wrong way. There might be some, Lord God, who are digging in their heels, and they just are committed not to changing things because they're just, they're just committed to staying the way they are. Bring now your gentle spirit 
And if there are people who just need to repent, Lord God, of a posture that they have held, a strong-willed posture, hallelujah. I rarely do this, but if I'm praying for you and you know that a strong-willed posture is something that God is massaging your heart about, just raise your hand and put it back down, not to me, but to God, just so that you can say to the Lord, God, I hear you talking to me. God bless you. I sense that that is something that the Lord is working on here. God bless you. May the Spirit of the Lord God rest on you. May the power of God come upon you. May his peace now come and give you the strength to be his witness in ways that will amaze and astound you. It won't come through your power but through your strength. And Lord, I thank you now for this moment of repentance. There might be others and you hold a grudge and it's a strong grudge and you feel justified in the grudge. I don't know who you are, but if there's a need for apology, I just pray that you would use the quiet of this moment in your heart to make a decision. God, I'm going to let it go. Sometimes a real strong thing to do is to stay mad. And it's weakness that allows you to feel sad. Come Holy Spirit. Ask him now if that's you. Come Holy Spirit and help me to let it go. Who am I praying for? If you just raise your hand and put it back down. Just a spirit of anger. I know I feel strong when I'm mad. God is wanting us to let it go. If there's a need for apology in the church, Lord God, come Holy Spirit. I may not have called out what you're struggling with or what you're thinking about, but I hear the Lord saying some people trust in horses and chariots. That's a scripture, meaning some people trust in things that give them a sense of strength, but we'll trust in the name of the Lord our God. Father God, we lay at your feet right now everything that we trust in that supersedes you. If we trust in ourselves right now in our mind's eye, we lay ourselves at the altar. I'm telling you folks, if you even need to come to the altar, you can do it. It's all right with me. But Lord God, we lay it at your feet this morning. We lay it at your feet so that you can show up in this church in powerful and mind-blowing ways. Come Holy Spirit. We lay it at your feet. The altar is open for anybody who wants to pray at the altar. You don't have to. But as whoever wants to come does, let me ask this last question. If you're here this morning and you've never met Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've never made the decision that he should be the Lord of your life, the weakest thing you can admit is that you need a God and that you can't be your own God, that God can do a better job with your life than you're doing. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, I'd love the privilege of introducing him to you. Because there's so many people and I can't see all hands raised, I'm going to pray a general prayer over everyone, and I'd ask you all to pray it out loud. And if you pray this and mean this in your heart, I'd ask you to come up at the end of service. I'd love to greet you personally. Say out loud, Lord Jesus Christ, I believe in you. I believe you died so that I could live. I receive the free gift of salvation. Come into my heart, change my life, and make me the person you want me to be. From this day forward, I declare that you are Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Praise the Lord. I'm going to stay and I'm going to pray for as many people who want me to pray. 
If you prayed that prayer and you meant it from your heart, the first person I'm going to pray for is you. God bless you. Go in peace and serve the Lord. Amen. 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 Thank you very much. God bless you, baby. Hallelujah.